Welcome to episode 7 of our PolicyCorner.org podcast series. This is a very special episode, one that is ultimately the result of almost a whole year of hard work by everyone on the Policy Corner team. We have been incredibly busy the last couple of months, first organizing an international writing competition on new economic thinking, and then, last night, we had our big panel discussion event at Freie Universität Berlin, which we will publish as a podcast as well. Today, our guest is one of the winners of our writing competition, Tim Pfefferle, and he traveled all the way from Cologne to Berlin to join us for our event and for this episode. Welcome, Tim. Thanks. I'm very glad to be here. Today, we will discuss Tim's piece entitled Fossil Fuels, the case for ending producer subsidies, which is all about how governments around the world continue to subsidize investments into fossil fuel production while paying lip service to the fight against climate change. There has been a curious lack of debate on this issue, but no longer, because we will learn all about it today. If we recognize that we're now sort of in emergency territory or really the next two, three, four, five years, um, we really have to step up our game. It really reflects that we do have momentum, but the question is really, is all of this enough to, to reach the goal that we set for ourselves? My name is Felix Hoffmann. I am moderating and producing this podcast for policycorner.org, our website where we publish policy-oriented articles by young scholars and students. Go check it out. You can become a part of this great project, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, and leave us a rating if you enjoy this project. Joining me today is Tim Pfefferle. He studied international relations, global governance and diplomacy in London and Oxford and worked for the German development agency GIZ in Bonn and Brasilia, as well as for the European Commission in Brussels. His work focuses on climate change and currently deals with how to approach a managed decline of fossil fuels and guarantee a just transition. Tim also runs the Divestment Post Twitter account, which is all about defunding the drivers of climate change. You should go and check it out. Tim, it is great to have you. Thank you. So let's dive right into your article. In it, you cite research that US subsidies are responsible for pushing nearly half of future oil investments in the United States into profitability. Could you give us an idea of what this means and on what levels this might be or become a problem? Right. So first, I think it's it's important to sort of lay out what production subsidies actually are, because I think a lot of people are unaware that this is going on. So a production subsidy could be anything from uh, a tax credit, so a fossil fuel company not having to pay as much tax or no tax at all. It could be a loan guarantee. It could be financing for fossil fuel exports. So this, this is really a variety of measures that, um, that are going on. And we often think that renewable energy is what is most heavily subsidized. But that's actually not true. If you look at the long haul, uh, renewable subsidies are really uh, only a fraction of what fossil fuels have uh, traditionally received. And even today... Basically, fossil fuels still receive more subsidies than uh, renewables. And so there's really an impression that, that fossil fuels do not benefit from financial support um, and sort of work according to supply and demand. But that's, that's really not the case. Um, so when we talk about climate change, um, it's, it's really surprising that something like uh, production incentives for fossil fuels 
uh, are rarely ever mentioned. Um, if you look at the scholarship that is currently uh, going on, it really focuses on consumption, consumption subsidies, um, really heavily in uh, developing countries. Um, this has to do with the fact that, um, for example, institutions like the IMF um, go to countries and tell them, you need to cut, cut your energy subsidies. Um, and uh, a demand-side subsidy um, would be something like, there's an international price for en energy, and a government says, we're going to charge our customers less. And so the difference between the international price and the domestic price would be a consumption subsidy. Um, now, we have a, a situation with uh, something like the Sustainable uh, Development Goals, which says that also rich countries um, have to contribute to um, global development. And production incentives are, are really concentrated in, in rich countries, in, in the G20 in particular. Um, so I, I find this really interesting because um, we're now at a stage where rich countries have to really contribute to, to global uh, solutions to climate change. Um, and subsidies are uh, a big problem because it makes it harder for renewables to compete. It really slows down the adoption of sustainable solutions. Um, it sort of uh, works as a negative carbon price. So um, if you think about a carbon price, what you would want to do is to um, make um, CO2 emissions um, more expensive. And by subsidizing um, the production of fossil fuels, what you're doing is the opposite. Uh, you're making them cheaper. Um, the second problem is that it sends a signal to the market that um, countries are really not fully committed to the energy transitions. Transition. Um, they continue to envision a future um, where coal and oil and gas play a, a really big uh, role. Um, this leads to what's called a carbon lock-in because the, the infrastructure that you're building now, that you're subsidizing now, will remain in place because the companies that benefit from these subsidies are putting the infrastructure in place for decades and decades. Um, now, if that infrastructure has to be shut down, um, then you could produce massive losses, and this could then eventually lead to really financial instability. Um, so it, it's really problematic. And the last point I would say is, you could also imagine lots of other uses for uh, what is in the end public money. You could fund healthcare, you could fund education, uh, you could fund all kinds of social progr uh, um, programs. Uh, and instead, this money is being pumped to fossil fuel companies. Um, so it's a, a question of opportunity costs. Hmm. You also uh, mentioned the term zombie energy, which refers to the fact that a significant share of fossil fuel production is only profitable because it continues to benefit from subsidies. Are we dependent upon the energy that is, that is being produced with the support of these subsidies? Do we need it? Well, um, with... Uh, you know, what we call zombie energy, um, really the, the idea is, is that that energy would really not be produced if it weren't for this, this massive support um, via subsidies. Um, so it, it doesn't really respond to any demand that is out there. Um, it, it just goes beyond um, the demand and tries to produce um, fossil fuels that are not uh, being demanded in the market. Um, 
the rationale for that is to explore um, as many oil and gas fields as possible uh, and coal deposits as well to some degree. Because um, as I've said, once, once that infrastructure is in place, it really becomes very difficult politically to remove it. So companies have an incentive to go out and explore as much as possible. Um, and for that reason, something like uh, subsidies for um, exploration, for fossil fuel exploration, um, it's really the most pernicious form of fossil fuel subsidies because um, you can't just go out and explore all of these um, new reserves um, because once they've been explored, they will remain in place and they will be dumped uh, on the global market. Um, just um, to give you an idea of um, what kinds of emissions um, zombie energy translates to, um, zombie energy subsidies is, is roughly equal to the emissions that we expect from aviation uh, until 2050. Wow. So I would say pretty, pretty significant. It's uh, 37 gigatons of, of uh, CO2. Um, the, the problem is that we already have enough fossil fuel reserves as it is to both through the remaining carbon budget. So any additional exploration is really on top of what we can, we can afford. Um, so which is to say that uh, this extra exploration really should not benefit from public money. Um, because it just artificially incentivizes more and more fossil fuel uh, use and really reward, rewards the companies that, that do this exploration. Okay, interesting. So now we, we have an idea of what producer subsidies are and what it is that they do, but could you give us a quick idea of what the magnitude of these measures is? Like in comparison to, let's say, expenditures in education or on social benefits, what amount of financial and political capital is spent on these subsidies here in, in Europe and also in, in other parts of the world? Well, it's, it's a good question because it's actually pretty difficult to say precisely um, what the scope of subsidies are because, um, as you can imagine, uh, countries are relatively reluctant to, to publish the full measure of subsidies. Um, the other problem is that there's really no agreed definition what is and isn't a subsidy. There's a WTO definition, um, but really, according to that, anything and nothing can be a subsidy. Um, so based on that, there's really different figures that, that you could use. Um, one is from a uh, report by ODI, which is a think tank, uh, together with um, Oil Change International, an NGO, and they found that um, within the G20 alone, um, producer subsidies basically amount to $444 billion a year. Um, out of that, $78 billion alone goes to exploration for new reserves. Um, if you look at a country like the U.S., um, they found that it's um, basically $20 billion a year. If you look at the EU budget alone, so, so let alone EU member states, the actual EU budget, um, 4 billion uh, euros goes for production uh, a year. Um, if you compare it to something like Horizon 2020, which is sort of the EU flagship program for um, innovation and, and solutions for the future, that is 10 billion. So um, almost um, half of what the Horizon 2020 budget would be goes to um, fossil fuel production. Amazing. So it's, it, it is quite sufficient. If you um, want to have a look at what sort of um, reform could achieve, there was a paper that was put out that focused on subsidies uh, in general, so um, not specific to producer subsidies, but they found that um, fossil fuel subsidy reform 
uh, alone would be enough to fund um, uh, finance for universal access to water, sanitation, and electricity worldwide. Um, wow, that's impressive. So it is, it is they blow a lot of pretty money amazing. <laughs> okay, so, so here's a fun fact. Policy Corner is a great project and it, it keeps getting bigger, but let's be honest, it's not huge yet. It's not the New York Times yet. But if you Google fossil fuels producer subsidies, which I all encourage you to do, your article, Tim, on our website is the second result that comes up out of about 21 million. Is there a lack of attention in public debate about this issue? Is there a lot of political discussion about it? I mean, the, the short answer to that is yes, and that's that's also partly why I picked this topic, because I think it's really underrepresented in, um, in our current debate. Um, I mean, for, for a really long time, we've focused on um, what is generally known as demand-side solutions to climate change. So um, principally, this is really developing alternative energy, solar energy, wind, geothermal, um, other forms of um, non-fossil fuel uh, energy. Uh, and then another thing is uh, thinking about things like um, carbon market and taxes. And the basic problem with that is that it's demand-side solutions are can be quite hard to actually implement politically. Um, if you think about something like a carbon tax, um, there was a paper I read recently that's called uh, Death and Environmental Taxes, which argued that precisely in those countries that want to have um, market-based demand solutions, it becomes really difficult to implement it because something like a carbon tax can really easily be uh, characterized as a tax on the poor. Like if you want to go and, and fill up your gas tank, uh, which is suddenly twice as expensive because of carbon tax, it becomes really difficult politically. Um, demand side solutions have been really uh, useful and have produced real change, um, but it's really not the whole story of um, thinking creatively about solutions to climate change. If we look at, for example, Germany, um, we actually did it differently with the energy transition in Germany. Um, in Germany, we, uh, in the early 2000s, we said, we're shutting off nuclear energy uh, over a period of 20 years, um, which is basically a supply-side solution. We said, one form of energy generation will be phased out, and this gave really space for something like solar and wind to um, experience a boost. Um, there's one paper that recently came out uh, that really argued that Germany's nuclear exit is really responsible for the global boom in solar and wind. So these supply side uh, policies can be really powerful and fossil fuel subsidy reform would be one. Um, so we really have to um, uh, say that just boosting demand for something like renewables isn't enough. Um, you need to tackle fossil fuels directly. Um, of course, that is only one example. Other examples of um, supply-side solutions is uh, preventing new oil and gas pipelines from being built. Um, there's currently a wave of climate change lawsuits um, that are often being led by children, um, which really go directly against um, fossil fuel companies um, for example, a company like ExxonMobil is really under pressure to uh, respond to legal challenges. Um, and then there's another thing that, as you said, I'm, I'm personally involved in, which is divesting funds um, from fossil fuel companies. Um, now, in terms of producer subsidies, there's, I would say there's been a shift of attention. 
um, but it's really limited to academia and sort of the think tank world. Um, and I think uh, in general, this topic is only slowly being picked up in sort of the general public. So, so would you say that this lack of public and political attention, is it, is it unintentional or, or is it deliberate? Is it a political strategy? Is it wanted? I mean, obviously, um, fossil fuel companies don't want to be caught taking huge amounts of public money um, simply because they want to create a perception where uh, renewables are expensive and subsidized and oil and gas and coal are cheap and based on market dynamics only. And as we've seen, that's, that's really not true. Um, but they have an incentive to create that perception. Um, and the same is, to some extent, also true for governments. Um, they all talk about how important climate change is and um, what a uh, top point it is on their agenda. Mm. Um, so there is a bit of hypocrisy involved when you're subsidizing fossils uh, at the same time. Um, so it's, it's really not that surprising that this isn't really a topic that government leaders want to discuss uh, openly. Um, now, at the G20 in Pittsburgh in 2009, um, the G20 leaders announced that subsidies for fossil fuels um, should be phased out gradually. Um, this came, of course, in the wake of the 08 uh, financial crisis, where um, governments had to think about how to balance budgets, so this came in handy at the time. But really, in the nine years since then, very uh, little concrete measures have actually been introduced on the producer side. Mm. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say that this is some sort of grand conspiracy. Uh, really, it's more to the, due to the role that um, fossil fuels and, and fossil fuel producers themselves play in our economy as well as in, really in our culture, in our society. It's, it's sort of uh, ingrained in the system. Um, the, the incentives and institutions um, really make it so that reforming the system becomes very, very difficult. Um, and the same is, is true at the global level as well. If you look at the Paris Agreement itself, um, you know, as, as important as it is, it doesn't mention fossil fuels anywhere in the text. Mm -hmm. So... Um, we really haven't uh, come to terms with the fact that we actually need to tackle fossil fuels directly. So, as we've learned earlier, like these subsidies are still being paid out on like a big scale. Could you give us an impression of the arguments that supporters of such measures bring forward? What are the alleged benefits of these of these producer subsidies? Well, one one significant argument that um, I hear very often is that. You know, new fossil fuel infrastructure leads to um, new tax income for governments. It creates jobs, right? You build a gas pipeline. It, uh, it needs to, the steel needs to be produced. It needs to be assembled. Workers are paid on site. Um, so that, that is one reason. Um, another uh, benefit that uh, governments often claim is, um, is energy security, Right, you have governments um, that want to build a gas pipeline, um, give support to oil companies um, to shore up domestic drilling, um, to become energy independent. Um, this is this is something, for example, that goes on in the EU, where the EU um, is really um, desperate for um, measures to become uh, more independent of Russia. Mm -hmm. um, 
Now, increasingly, uh, it's, it's really interesting that, that fossil fuel companies, they're sort of uh, making a moral argument. They're sort of saying, well, we're providing cheap energy um, to help developing countries grow and reduce poverty. Um, so that's, that's kind of a new thing um, where they're sort of shifting gears and saying that the fossil fuel industry is sort of uh, the driver behind global poverty alleviation. Um, so that's, that's, that's an argument that, that is now being made as well. Cool. Uh, thanks for, for the overview. Um, let's maybe turn towards your proposed uh, solutions, because in your article you argue that transparency over which states subsidize fossil fuel production to what extent might be one avenue worth pursuing. Are there any such initiatives on the political agenda and what do you think is their chance of success? Um, well, for one, there's um, an initiative that is um, currently uh, being pursued by the OECD, so the um, Organization for Economic uh, Cooperation and Development, which is sort of um, uh, a think tank for, for rich countries. Um, so they, they looked at um, measures worldwide of um, where producer subsidies are really in place in uh, national legislation uh, and other executive measure, measures. Um, so they're really doing the nitty-gritty work of actually looking into That's the text work, yeah. <laughs> of, of countries and looking, okay, uh, this is a measure here, there's another measure there. So it's, it's really sort of grueling work. Um, there's also, uh, there are also peer reviews that are taking place within the G20 that were set up um, after the, the Pittsburgh summit in 2009. So uh, the United States and China did a peer review of each other's um, fossil subsidies. Peru and New Zealand did the same. So this, um, you know, uh, sunshine is the best uh, disinfectant. So you're um, asking another country to look at um, what you're doing in terms of fossil fuel subsidies. Then there's other sort of smaller measures. There's um, something called Friends of Fossil Fuel Subsidy Reform, um, which is a club of countries that are interested in pursuing subsidy reform. There's the Global Subsidy Initiative, which is part of uh, the International Institute for Sustainable Development. Um, in general, Scandinavian countries are quite interested in, in pursuing reform as well. And then last year, uh, we had an announcement from the World Bank, uh, which announced that it would be pulling out um, from oil and gas support. Um, that was last year only. That was last year, yeah. Wow. They, they pulled out from coal, I believe, in 2010, and last year they did the same for oil and gas. Mm -hmm. So there, there is some momentum, but the question is really, is this sort of gradual piecemeal reform enough to, to make enough of an, of an impact? Okay, so you mentioned G20 and you mentioned OECD and you mentioned uh, government governments, but maybe let's also talk about the level of, of civil society. You also manage the at divestment post Twitter account, which I encourage everyone to check out, um, which shares articles on the divestment movement. What is divestment and, and what is this movement trying to achieve? Right. So basically it's, um, in the late 2000s, um, climate scientists began to calculate um, what is actually our carbon budget? How much more fossil fuels can we actually produce if we want to stay within sort of um, an internationally agreed um, uh, limit of global warming? 
And so they came up with figures, and then um, people suddenly realized that um, we actually have more fossil fuel reserves than what we can feasibly produce if we're actually taking climate change seriously. So this, this really means that if you're investing in fossil fuel companies, there's a limit to the um, economic returns that these companies can actually produce because most of the reserves actually have to be uh, left in the ground. So they, they cannot be produced if you're taking climate change seriously. Um, so what this really is, is a carbon bubble. And so the divest divestment um, argues that actually investors need to pull their money from fossil fuel companies because they're not financially viable entities. Um, now, that is, that is the one argument. The other argument is that um, divestment movements have happened in other contexts as well. So the most well-known is divesting from uh, apartheid uh, Southern Africa. South Africa, sorry. Um, so the, there's a moral argument to be made that you shouldn't be investing in fossil fuels because they have such a detrimental impact to the environment, to global development, that it's really immoral to keep on investing in fossil fuels. So on the one, on the one hand, you have sort of this financial uh, argument, on, and on the other, you have this moral uh, argument. And uh, currently, if you look at the figures, um, institutions that have divested um, from fossil fuels um, account for a $6 trillion in assets. So it is, it is um, pretty significant and, and growing rapidly. So if we're being a little naive and just believe the French Minister for Foreign Affairs, that message has actually reached European governments. Here is the French Minister for Foreign Affairs, Jean-Baptiste Lemoyne, in the French Parliament. One of our main demands is that any country who signs a trade agreement with the European Union should implement the Paris Agreement on the ground. No Paris Agreement, no trade agreement. The United States knows what to expect. What do you make of statements like these, knowing that they are made by representatives of the same governments that subsidize the extraction of fossil fuels on a big scale? Right, I think, I think we need to clarify uh, what the Paris Agreement actually is, um, because it's, it's quite interesting. It's very broad. It's a, it's a very political uh, kind of framework. If you uh, compare it to, for example, the uh, uh, Kyoto Agreement, uh, that was very legal. Uh, it's uh, committed countries to binding commitments. Uh, and the Paris Agreement is really pursuing sort of an, a different uh, approach. It allows every country to find their own path uh, towards the climate commitments. Um, and therefore, it really allows for a certain amount of hypocrisy because that, that is precisely what is needed to get everyone to sign up for a global agreement. So there will inevitably be some um, inconsistencies um, because it is giving everyone a space to breathe. Um, I would say everyone, including the U.S., which had previously signed up. Now, we know that this has recently uh, changed because the Trump administration has signaled uh, its intention to withdraw. Now, we'll see if, if that actually happens. Um, as far as France, I think it's... Uh, it's interesting because um, Emmanuel Macron um, 
at least in rhetoric, he's signaled that he's willing to make climate policy one of his priorities. He always mentions it. It's sort of associated with him. Um, France uh, recently set an end date for the internal combustion engine. It uh, announced a ban on oil drilling uh, in France. So they, they have some momentum in France. Um, of course, Macron also hosted the, the One Planet Summit last year, uh, which gave a, a platform to some of the things that we're talking about here today. So he is a bit of a, a climate showman, if, if, if you will. Uh, when you look at that quote, um, I think you, it's, it's important to consider that um, there are currently no active talks uh, really ongoing between the EU and the US. I mean, TTIP is like, deep in the freezer. I, it's like minus 100. <laughs> um, so, I mean, you can, you can uh, pump out a statement like that um, when you can be rest assured that... Um, Without much political cost. Exactly. Um, I think there's also an expectation that sort of uh, the Trump administration is sort of an aberration and that the U.S. will come to its senses and re-enter the Paris Agreement. So I think th this is all of a bit of an exercise in political virtue signaling, um, mm. which is uh, better than nothing. I wouldn't take it necessarily too seriously. But then again, you know, he is now on record. So in the future, you can you can point to that quote and really hold uh, France's feet to the fire. They will listen to this podcast. <laughs> exactly. So from from what we've learned so far, producer subsidies seem like such a bad idea. You you spend a ton of money to to subsidize something you don't really want, while at the same time spending huge amounts of money and political capital on fighting the, the long-term implications of these subsidies. Do you see the same paradox? And, and more importantly, do, do you see a way out? I mean, when we talk about subsidies in general, it's, it's not a phenomenon that's limited to, to fossil fuel subsidies that um, funds are not always committed to goals that make sense. I mean, for our international listeners, if you take a look at... Uh, Bavaria, um, they're subsidizing uh, moms to stay at home, for example. So, uh, you know, there, is, there are other examples that, that come to mind. Um, but this really drives home the point that uh, we need to think about uh, climate change and fossil fuel subsidies in terms of political economy. So these aren't decisions that are necessarily based on sort of economic analysis and what does and doesn't make sense. It's all about sort of what makes sense within uh, a given political system. Um, now, the solution, I would say, is that you really need to start paying attention to the supply side, uh, as we've discussed. You need to build social movements around limiting fossil exploration, in addition to boosting renewables and sort of other demand-side policies, for example, carbon taxes. So you really need to have sort of a full recipe that really tackles the issue from all sides. Um, one example on the supply side that is interesting is called the uh, Lofoten Declaration, uh, which calls for a managed decline of fossil fuel production. Um, but I think you also need to work with governments directly and really point out the sort of the co-benefits of ref reforming subsidies. If we think about Germany, for example, we're really obsessed with something something like balanced budgets. Um, at the same time, we're giving out huge amounts in fossil fuel subsidies. So there's uh, an incons inconsistency there. Um, 
we also want to provide funds to poorer countries to deal with climate change. Um, so I would say, why, why not take a portion of the money that you could save uh, through subsidy removal and give it to a body like the Green Climate Fund, um, which is really underfunded. You could shore up your own reputation internationally, uh, sort of, you know, you could become a hero. Uh, you remove subsidies and you're giving the savings to uh, climate finance. Mm. So I think that's sort of a win-win in my mind. So uh, speaking of heroes, here is uh, U.S. President Trump, a true climate hero, at a rally on December 8th in Pensacola, Florida, fantasizing about clean, beautiful coal. We've lifted the restrictions on American energy, including shale, oil, natural gas, and clean, beautiful coal, of which we have a thousand years of supply. The Trump administration has also recently announced its plan to cut clean energy research by 72% in 2019. But it's not only Trump. The European Investment Bank has recently voted to provide a 1.5 billion euro loan to the Trans-Adriatic Pipeline, a gas corridor that will connect a large gas field in the Caspian Sea to Italy. What do you think will be the long-term impact of such decisions to invest in gas and to invest in coal on global climate governance? I think uh, in terms of Donald Trump, I have the impression that we tend to overreact to sort of these grand announcements. Um, it's not necessarily because he changes them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's never really clear what the specific impacts of these decisions are. I mean, he says, he says a lot of stuff. Uh, of course, the, the budget also needs to be um, validated by the U.S. Congress. So all of this is often just a, a sort of a political wish list. Um, now, if we compare it to a sort of a, a hypothetical Clinton administration, you know, if we're still capable of doing that, um, even Hillary Clinton um, wouldn't have implemented the necessary policies to really make that that difference that we need. Um, uh, before the election, there was a, um, a piece of research that came out that said, um, compared to two terms of a Trump presidency, uh, two terms of Hillary Clinton would sort of be a difference of 16% in emissions. So significant, but then again, um, a Clinton administration wouldn't have led to the cuts in emissions that the US would really have needed to contribute. So. I think we need to, to keep that in mind. Um, but at the same time, it is really, really telling that, for example, the agency in the US that has been the most successful in carrying out the Trump agenda is the EPA, which is the, the US environmental regulator. I mean, they have really implemented a lot, a lot of policies that are, are really detrimental. Uh, there was also recently a really a bonkers proposition uh, basically to, to subsidize um, fuel stocks for coal and nuclear um, that was then rejected by uh, a regulator. So they, they were planning to pay um, fossil fuel companies just to keep coal reserves. So some of this, some of this stuff is, is quite insane. Um, I also recently read that um, coal miners in, in West Virginia are turning down uh, free retraining to uh, enter other industries because they're convinced that coal is coming back because of announcements like this. Um, uh, so 
what is damaging other than the actual concrete um, emissions impact is really the, this signaling, this political signaling. Um, a lot of energy innovations have come from the US traditionally. Um, and now it's basically saying to the world that, yeah, we're really not taking this issue seriously anymore. Um, it's, it's not an accident that Emmanuel Macron is telling US scientists to come to France for their research. Um, I think he recently gave 13 really big grants to US scientists to come there and do their research there mm -hmm. instead of the US because they're not really welcome anymore. Yeah. Um, so it's taking, it's taking uh, a certain amount of dynamism away. Um, now, at the same time, we're really now approaching emergency territory when it comes to climate change. Um, there is something called the Climate Action Tracker, um, which sort, sort of measures countries by uh, what they need to contribute to um, global climate solutions. And there's uh, exactly one country that is currently on track to meet uh, its goals, um, which is Morocco. Nice. Uh, a lot of people won't know this. Morocco is very ambitious when it comes to uh, climate policy. And so recently, I think Costa Rica was also um, the only other country which um, has now been downgraded, I think, in the in the latest version. So Morocco is... Um, Go Morocco. Yeah. Um, there's also um, analysis by the United Nations, which uh, every year is publishing its emissions gap. And if we look at current... Um, climate policies within the framework of the Paris Agreement, um, there, there's really a, a gap of almost one degrees um, between um, the two degrees maximum warming that we're striving for and what is currently being proposed by countries as concrete policies. So, so within sort of this, um, this global framework, um, the Trump administration is only sort of one... Um, Peace. Mm. It is significant, but I think we need to um, keep in mind um, how it relates to the overall uh, framework. Um, now, the, the TAP pipeline is interesting because um, this is the European investments, uh, Investment Bank's largest loan ever for an energy project. Um, so if you think about this, uh, that in terms of signaling, it's, it's quite significant. Yeah, they bet um, on gas. Perfect. Yeah, and it's it's part of uh, what what is called EU projects of common interest, uh, which sort of receive preferential treatment because um, they are part of the EU a Commission a plan um, to reach the EU climate goals. So in theory, this gas pipeline is supposed to contribute to EU climate goals, which is sort of paradoxical yeah, on its face, but. The argument is that it's um, supposed to displace a coal generation. Um, For gas. Exactly. It's I mean, hard. gas, at least in theory, has less emissions. Now, the problem with a very long pipeline is that um, it tends to leak. So um, a lot of these um, emission savings are hypothetical because it leaks on the way um, mm -hmm. to the consumer. Um, they're doing it because sort of gas production in Europe is declining. They want to be independent from Russia for obvious reasons. And it's also sort of being demanded by Eastern European countries. So there's a lot of um, political reasons really behind it. Mm -hmm. um, this is a, a 1.5 billion euro loan. Um, 
it is uh, coming from the Caspian Sea and it's going through various countries, Greece, Italy, Albania. Isn't it also um, going through Azerbaijan? Do you know that? Yes. I read it somewhere. Yes, it is. It's like a dictatorship. Yeah, I mean, it's also connecting with Turkey. Um, oh, well. So, you know. <laughs> nice. So that's the, the energy security we need. Yeah, I mean, what this does is it signals to the market that this really uh, the EU Commission expects gas to play a, a big role in uh, European energy policy. Um, now, according to um, most analysis, really the EU needs to be completely fossil free by about 2030, 2035. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're building a gas pipeline in 2018, the expectation is they'll be there for yeah. decades and decades. Yeah, so there's <laughs> a lot of inconsistency there. I mean, um, I think I read that um, sort of in the, um, in uh, one of the advertisements uh, for the TAP pipeline, uh, they're claiming benefits for Albania until 2068. So mm -hmm. this is a, a, meant as a long-term project. Um, so it, it really, you know, reflects this thinking in Europe that gas is being used as a bridge fuel away from coal. Right. Um, there have been protests in Italy against it. Um, so this has led to delays. Um, I think we should also mention that the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development is also deciding on a further loan, uh, which is supposed also to be announced. There's uh, more money to come. Exactly. So, um, it's, it's interesting um, to see that there's really an inconsistency between the use on climate goals and what money is being spent on infrastructure. So relating to that, maybe really quickly, because we're already at like 40 minutes, do you see change happening anytime soon in regard to how these subsidies are structured and on what public funds are spent? And what do you think needs to happen in order to induce this change? Well, I think we do see change. I mean, there's more and more research coming out, more think tanks are engaging with this topic. Um, but then again, if we look, if we recognize that we're now sort of in emergency territory or really the next two, three, four, five years, um, we really have to step up our game. Um, it's, it becomes really difficult to remain, to remain optimistic because uh, you would think that something like fossil fuel subsidy reform would be sort of one of the easier policies you could imagine. Mm. Um, so Seems like a no-brainer. <laughs> it would That's, be a no-brainer, yeah. and then you start thinking about additional measures that you have to also put in place. Um, it really reflects that we do have momentum, but the question is really, is all of this enough to, to reach the goal that we set for ourselves? And I think, you know, currently my answer to that would be no, because it's just not fast enough. What we would really need is sort of a, a scale of mobilization, sort of like World War II, mm. if we're being honest. So that, since that is not happening, I think we, you know, need to be pessimistic. Okay, so uh, let's hope uh, mankind steps up its, its climate protection game. Um, fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for, for being here today, Tim. And congratulations again on your article and third place in our writing competition on rethinking economic policy. I hope you enjoyed this episode of our Policy Corner.org podcast series. If that is the case, please leave us a rating on iTunes and tell your friends. Please also feel free to check out our website, policycorner.org, where you can read Tim's article and many more. 
coming soon, we will also publish an amazing panel discussion we had during the final ceremony of our writing competition as a podcast, so stay tuned. My name is Felix Hoffmann, and that's it for today. As always, there's more exciting stuff to come, so hit subscribe and be back next month for our policycorner.org podcast series. Goodbye.